Remain standing for the gospel lesson and the sermon text as we make our way through John's gospel. Listen carefully and closely to the gospel of God. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will eat me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Thus far the reading of God's word, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can stand on it because it is absolute truth. Help us to understand it and to do it today and this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We saw last week that the story of the wedding at Cana ends with a statement that the disciples believed. They had faith. John 2.11 says the beginning of the signs of Jesus, this beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The miracle of changing water into wine is called a sign and it had two effects. First, it manifested the glory of Jesus. Second, it caused the disciples to believe in Jesus. Now look at how today's story ends. John 2.22 says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. These events are producing faith in Christ's disciples and John recorded them so that they would produce faith in us. Alongside the power of the resurrection, these words provide, give us life, give us faith. 
So in this sense, John is staying on track with his stated intent at the end of the book in John 20. John 20, verse 31, John makes clear his purpose in writing this gospel. He says, I'll read verses 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So if you want to have life, then you put your faith in Jesus. Believe with your heart that he is the Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead. If you want to increase your faith in Jesus, if you want your trust in Christ to go deeper and to become richer, then keep reading John's gospel with me. As we continue to see the glory of Jesus, we will grow in our faith. We will experience life in his name, abundant life. Verse 12 is a transitional verse. It tells us about Christ's move from his hometown, Nazareth, to Capernaum. Capernaum is where Jesus carried out his, the bulk of his ministry. But not long after he moved to Capernaum, it was time for him to head up to Jerusalem for one of the three major annual feasts, perhaps the most important one, Passover. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple takes off in verse 13. Verses 13 and 14 set the stage for us. Let me read these verses again. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. These oxen, sheep, and doves were used for sacrificial worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And when the Jews came to the temple to worship, they didn't always bring their own animals. Maybe usually they didn't bring their own animals, especially if they were coming from a distance. So a Jew coming from Italy or Spain or Egypt, crossing the Mediterranean Sea, or even from northern Israel, would, would not be expected to bring his own animals to sacrifice. So it was a convenience and a service for them to be able to purchase animals on site instead of having to carry them along from afar. Now, at one point in Jerusalem's history, the, anim, the, the merchants, the, the animal merchants, set up their tables, their stalls, outside the temple precincts. In fact, outside of Jerusalem itself, they, they set them up over on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which was across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. But at this point, when Jesus comes onto the scene, we see that they're setting up their businesses in the temple area. People are exchanging currencies, buying animals. They're doing business in a place that is supposed to be set aside for worship, for prayer, devotion to God. Verses 15 and 16 record Jesus' response to this. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house 
of merchandise. Now, we need to make sure we understand what the real problem was here. The problem is not that the merchants are corrupt. Maybe they are, but we don't know. That's not the point. There's no evidence that the animal sellers and the money changers are guilty of shady business practices. The fault is not really theirs primarily. It's the leadership who allowed them to do their business in the temple. So the problem is that these businesses are in the temple area. Jesus' rebuke is, how dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Nothing wrong with marketplaces. Something wrong with marketplaces in the temple. Instead of solemn dignity and the, the sounds, murmurs of prayer in the temple, there is the bleeding of sheep, the bellowing of oxen. Instead of broken spirits and contrite hearts before God, there's noisy commerce. Instead of holy adoration and heartfelt petitions to God in God's house, there are financial dealings front and center. Jesus' actions here fulfill Malachi 3. I read it. You can turn there, but I read it. It's part of the Old Testament lessons. Let me read the first three verses again. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger, capital M, messenger of the covenant. That's the Lord himself. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So this passage, at least in part, points to our Lord's actions in the temple. It really points to more than that, his greater ministry of refining and judgment. But it points to this event as well. This is Jesus is the one who comes to the temple suddenly, the Lord who comes to the temple suddenly. Jesus is the refiner. The, the refiner and the refiner's fire, the launderer's soap. He's the purifier and the purger. And he didn't come only to refine the physical, literal temple. He also came to refine his people. Notice it says that he will purify the sons of Levi in Malachi 3. Jesus came primarily to refine people, his living temple. He came to refine you. And me, he came to purge your sin, to purify your heart. After all, you are a living temple. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's consider Jesus' anger for a minute. What do we do with Christ's anger in the temple? Well, we know that Jesus never sinned. So the starting point is that this is righteous anger, righteous indignation. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple destroys the image of a Jesus who is always 
meek and mild. Jesus is not being mild here. A Jesus who is only ever meek and mild is an idol of our own making. It's not the Jesus in the Bible. But this idol is easy to find in places where Jesus products are sold. It's easy to find in some churches as well. This idol is a meek and mild Jesus who is weak and good-natured and whose greatest aim in life is to let you off the hook. Now, of course, Jesus is meek and mild. He even describes himself this way in Matthew 11, verse 29. He is gentle and lowly in heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But we must balance this with other scriptures where Jesus calls Herod a fox. Where he calls Peter Satan. Where he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and snakes and other things. Mark 3, 5 says that Jesus was angry and grieved at the Pharisees because of their hardness of heart. So Jesus is love, but there are things he hates. And here's the key point. Jesus was being just as God-like when he was wielding his whip and driving out the merchants as he was when he was being crucified. Jesus revealed just as much about who God is and about the glory of God when he cleansed the temple as he did when he died on the cross. Both events reveal the nature of God. They manifest the glory of God. On the cross, Jesus expressed his love for the world. On the cross, the Father expressed his hatred of sin by pouring out his wrath on Jesus. In cleansing the temple, Jesus expressed his hatred of sin. The principle is this. Love and hatred always exist side by side. Love presupposes hatred. Righteous hatred presupposes love. A love for the oppressed, for example, is accompanied by a hatred for the conditions, the things that cause their suffering, their oppression. People of deep love are always people of deep hatred. And you can tell as much about a person by the things that he hates as you can about the things that he loves, by the things that he loves. If you really want to know the heart of a person, find out what he loves and what he doesn't love and what he hates and what he doesn't hate. And this will be telling. You will know his character. The scriptures teach us what God loves and what God hates. And the scriptures exhort us to align our loves and our hates with God. We don't get to love and hate whatever we want. Whatever God loves, you must love. Whatever he hates, you must hate. If something makes God angry, it should make you angry. If something brings God joy, it should bring you joy. 
You study your Bible in part so that you can learn to think God's thoughts after him, so that you can learn to feel God's feelings after him. God's logic should be your logic. God's emotions should be your emotions. When Jesus cleanses the temple here in John 2, we get a glimpse into one of the things that God, that makes God angry. Jesus, God's son, is upset that, that the Jews are acting with such religious irreverence toward his father. The very purpose of the temple was to glorify God through worship that came from that comes from the heart. And so anything that that detracts from God's glory must be driven out with a whip. It must be burned off with the refiner's fire. It must be purified with the fuller's soap. God's glory and holiness must be upheld at all cost. God must be feared. He must be revered above all. That's our chief end. And we need to hear this. We need to hear it constantly because the tendency of our flesh is to reduce God to less than he is. If you're not trying to fight against that tendency night and day, then you've probably reduced God to less than he is. Our fallen hearts want to worship a God who is always understanding and accommodating. A God who won't judge us. A God who won't come down on our sin too hard. A God who gives us space to be us. We want a God who doesn't mind if we saunter into his house with a smirk on our face and the world in our hearts. We want a God who is humble so there's space for us to be arrogant. In short, we want God to be a non-judgmental buddy who makes no demands on us, at least no more demands on us than we make of ourselves, and who comes through for us when we need him. That's the idol we'll make every time. Left to our own fallen hearts, our flesh. But to expect this or to desire this from God is idolatry. Only an idolatrous view of God could ever think that it's no big deal to turn his house, a house of worship, into a place of market. Our irreverence toward God reflects an idolatrous view of God. We need to see that connection. When we treat God flippantly or talk about God flippantly, as if our standards of sin and righteousness are His standards, and as if His standards are flexible, we are making a God in our own image. We might call this God Jesus or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it is really a God of our own creation. A God who lets us do what we want and worship Him the way we want and talk to Him the way we want. 
what fallen human nature really wants is a God who lets us trivialize his glory. What we really want left to ourselves is a God who will let us, who will allow us, who will give us room to trivialize his glory. This idolatrous view of God is manifested in some of our culture's ways of talking about God. The man upstairs is a flippant phrase that is born out of ignorance and a misunderstanding of God, His glory, His holiness, His majesty. It is an irreverent way to talk about God and an idolatrous way to think about God. The big man in the sky is not the God of Scripture. These cannot be acceptable ways to talk about the God who made the heavens and the earth, who sits on his throne. The God about whom the the seraphim constantly say to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. His glory fills all the earth. Isaiah 6, 3. Or Revelation 4, 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, the same seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the God of Scripture. He is holy. He is righteous. But it's not always the God that we have in mind when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, when we come to church on Sundays. If you thought of God as holy, 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 if you if you imagine God as having glory that fills all the earth. God's holiness and majesty were on your mind night and day as it is on the seraphim's mind. Would you still talk the way you talk? Would you watch the same things? Would you dress the same way? Would you show up to church at the same time? Would you spend your Sundays the same way? Would you laugh at the same jokes? Would you allow the temple of your heart to be bombarded with all of the sights, smells, and sounds of the world? Worldly distractions that keep you from glorifying God. When we lose sight of who God is, when we lose sight of God's holiness and His majesty, a flippant, irreverent, self-centered, faithless, and idolatrous attitude begins to take root in our lives. We lose the sense of God's majesty. And when we lose our sense of God's majesty, we lose our awareness of God's presence, that we are before God all the time. Our hearts become like the temple of Jesus' day, filled up with everything except thoughts about God, devotion to God. Your heart is like the temple that Jesus had to cleanse. Then you're probably unable to be still and know that God is God. It's very difficult for you. 
Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. How often do you do that? Do you have time to do that? Is there room in your heart to make that happen? Christ's anger in the temple was rooted not only in his hatred of their irreverent attitude toward God and his house. It was also rooted in his love for God and his house. See how those things go together. Verse 17 says, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will eat me up. It will consume me. This psalm is about David, of course, originally. But it found its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Jesus was consumed with zeal for God's house, for God's glory. He was consumed for zeal with zeal for the literal temple. But he's even more zealous for the temple that is you. The temple that is us. 1 Corinthians says that every Christian is a temple, an individual temple of God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They're God's because he lives there. It's his temple. Second Corinthians also says that all of us collectively are a temple of the living God. Listen to Second Corinthians 6, verse 16. For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And of course, our epistle lesson gets at this same truth that I read earlier. What does it mean, though, that you are God's temple? It means that Jesus is committed to cleansing you and refining you so that you become more and more a holy temple of the living God, a temple who glorifies God. That's how, that's how Jesus takes care of God's house or God's houses. And you are a house of God. We are a house of God. Each of you is a house of God. Jesus zealously cleanses every Christian, everyone who is his own who is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus zealously cleanses his church, which is also the temple of the living God, it says. So when your heart gets cluttered with noises and activities, some good, some sinful, that keep you from glorifying God in your body and in your spirit, Jesus will come and he'll purge it. He'll he'll purge the sin, remove it completely, but he'll also take the good things that shouldn't be where they are, and he'll help you reprioritize them. He is committed to your purity. 
He's devoted to making you a God-honoring temple of the Holy Spirit. Each of you and all of us. And Jesus will come again and again to cleanse your life when it's not giving glory to God. And when he comes, it will be painful. Whips always hurt. But you should give thanks for his whip and his anger over your sin. You should praise God for his chastisement, his affliction. His affliction is what keeps you on track. It's what gets you back on track. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. See, the psalmist is saying that before God afflicted him, before God disciplined him, before God whipped him into shape, he was wayward, but now that God has afflicted him, he's able to obey God, and he's thankful for it. This is the story of every one of us, the ongoing story. Psalm 119.71, a few verses later, says something similar. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I, that I may learn your statutes, your decrees. Our aim should be to hate sin and to love obedience as much as God does. Do you hate your sin as much as God does? Do you prize your obedience as much as God does? Then keep working on it. Don't become complacent. Don't be easier on your sin than God is. The Jewish leaders showed that they were far from God, not only by the way they treated the temple, but also by the way that they responded to Jesus. Verse 18 says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? In other words, we need to see a sign before we know that you have the authority, that you're the real deal to do these things. And this is not a good question. It never is. It's always a bad sign when people ask Jesus for a sign. There was another time when they asked Jesus to prove his power and authority with a sign. Listen, I'll read it. Matthew 12, 38 and 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's interesting language. Why is it evil and adulterous to ask Jesus for a sign? Because whenever they ask for a sign, they're not seeking after the truth. They're not wanting to be faithful to God, their king, their husband, their bridegroom. They're looking for an escape. They're looking to justify their unfaithfulness as the bride, as the people of God. You see, Israel's bridegroom is standing right before them. And they know who he is, but they suppress the truth. It's not that they don't have enough information. They're suppressing what they know. And they act as though Jesus still needs to prove himself. We just, we just haven't seen enough data, enough evidence. 
They say this, they act this way because they really want a different husband, a different king, a different God. They are evil and adulterous. That's how adulterous people act. They justify their sin with all kinds of logic and reasons to make it seem as though they're not committing adultery. They're not fornicating. They don't need more signs to prove what is true. The truth is plain as day. It's not hard to see. The truth is staring them in the eyes. The incarnation of truth, capital T, truth, is standing before them and speaking the truth to them. They don't need signs to prove the truth. They need hearts that love the truth. We don't need signs that prove the truth. We need hearts that love the truth. When you see people making intellectual arguments against the Christian faith or against the existence of God, you can always assume that their intellectual arguments are not the real issue. That's not, those aren't the real reasons that they are struggling in their faith. They may say that they don't believe in Jesus because there's not enough historical evidence or because the scientific evidence disproves the Bible or because there's too much suffering in the world. They can't make sense of it or something like that. But all of their philosophical arguments against God are not the real issue. Know this when you're talking to people in your life, at work, at school, your neighbors. The truth of the Christian faith is not difficult to see. It doesn't need more proof. We don't need more apologetics showing the evidence for God or Christianity. That's all good stuff. It's fine. That's not what people need. The reason people reject Jesus is not that they don't have enough facts or that their objections have not been answered. The primary reason people reject Jesus is that their hearts do not love the truth. It's not that the truth is hidden from them. It's that they have blinded themselves to the truth. Anyone who claims to be a truth seeker, I just want to know what's true, what's real, but who does not seek after Christ, who is not going after Jesus, is self-deceived. It's not really a truth seeker. Jesus is the truth. So if, you're, so if it's really the truth that you're after, then 100% of the time you will end up following Jesus. It's a heart issue. Not a brain issue. It's true. For, it was true for these Pharisees, these Jews. It's true for us today. Verse 19 says, Jesus answered and said to them in response to this faithless, adulterous request for a sign, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus answers their request 
for a sign with something of a riddle. Of course, he's referring to his own resurrection. These three days are referring to his death and resurrection, burial and resurrection. And this is similar to the answer that he gives to the Jews in Matthew 12 when, he asked, when they asked for a sign. I already read part of it. Listen again. Matthew 12, 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In each instance, Jesus says that the only sign he will give them is his resurrection from the dead. But in John 2, Jesus does more than point out his resurrection on the third day. He also identifies himself as the true temple. You see that? The true temple was not the one that they'd been working on for these 46 years. Kind of does two things at once in this short response. The true temple, he's saying, is standing right before them. Jesus is now the place where true sacrifice, true forgiveness, true worship take place. The temple in Jerusalem was eventually eventually destroyed. It failed to glorify God. And so God sent the Roman army in AD 70 to raise the temple to the ground. And that temple is gone forever. There will never again be a physical temple to fulfill prophecy. We're not waiting for the Jews to build another temple in Jerusalem. Biblical prophecy knows nothing of a future physical temple in fulfillment of prophecy. No, the temple has been forever replaced by Jesus. The old temple has been forever superseded by Christ. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, in the new Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The emphasis in the New Testament is that the final, ultimate, eschatological temple is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the new and the final meeting place with God. Jesus is where you go to get your sins taken care of now. Jesus is where you go to be covered with blood that can actually wash away sins, the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is where you go to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not to some mountain, not to some temple. Jesus is where you go for spiritual food and spiritual drink. Jesus is where God dwells in his fullness, in all his glory. Jesus is where you go if you want to be in God's house, in God's temple. And he says in John six thirty seven, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to us 
so that we can be with you, so that we can be in your house, and so that we can become part of your house. Help us by the power of the Spirit who lives in us to be holy temples, pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.